Okay. Hello, everyone. Okay. Welcome to the Chabura. Today, we have part two of our series in collaboration with the SNP Sephardi community. In part one, we had Rabbi Naftali Halev on the Jews of Turkey. Today, we have Dr. Eliezer Papa on the 1492 Spanish expulsion and the creation of virtual Sephardi. About our speaker, Dr. Eliezer Papa is a senior lecturer at Ben Gurion University, specializing in Sephardic literatures. He has chaired the Moshe David Garon Center for Ladino Culture since 2016, served on the Center for the Study of European Politics and Society since 2017, and joined the Council of the National Authority for Ladino Culture in 2015. 2018, he became the president of Sefarad and extended his roles to the Israeli National Academy for Ladino and the Spanish Royal Academy in 2020. Dr. Pablo authored an award-winning book and numerous articles and fiction works in several languages. It is an honor to have you with us, Doctor, and uh, thank you all for joining us live and uh, for all those who are going to be listening after. The floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you for this introduction. And let me share the screen so we can... Uh, yes. Okay. So, as you heard from Avi, the, the subject of our... Uh, discussion tonight is the 1492 expulsion and the creation of virtual Sephardi. So as we are starting, I would like to underline the fact that Iberian Jewish culture, unlike post-expulsion Sephardi culture, was not a Mediterranean culture. Most of the Jews who lived in the Iberian Peninsula were continental, just like the Jews of uh, most of the Jews of Africa, and just like most of the Jews of Europe, very continental community. So when, when we look at the, at the map, which shows the medieval Jewish communities prior to expulsion, you see how many of them are actually continental communities. And some of them seem to be near the sea, but that's only because this map is so small. Once you make it bigger, then you see that even, even uh, communities such as Leon, or even Oviedo, uh, certainly uh, Ribadavia and so on, were not on the seaside, right? Uh, here you have other medieval communities, Estela, Calahora, Tudela, Tarazona. They are all, some of them were uh, near the, the sea, like Tortosa or Palma de Mallorca. But most of the Jews were actually a continental, traditional continental population. Uh, this will all change. Okay, so here, for example, you see the Besalu and Girona, and neither of them is close to the sea. Or Segovia, obviously, Toledo, Avila, Plasencia, and so on, Sevilla. Uh, now this will change. With the expulsion, the, 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 most of the expulsees will establish their new home around the Mediterranean Sea and also around the Atlantic Ocean. And basically, we can we can claim with certainty that whoever was three days or more uh, remoted from the sea has lost eventually his Sephardic identity. He became either Mustarabi or Ashkenazi or anything else. Now, those Jews who settled around the Mediterranean Bazen, right, whether it's in Northern Africa or it's in, middle, in the Middle East, or uh, uh, in Ottoman Balkans, in Greece, in uh, Asia Minor, or even in Catholic countries such as uh, Pope's Italy and so on, they were actually, they actually created a telesocracy. Telesocracy, uh, just like Venetia. So virtual Sephardi, the Sephardi which was created 
after the expulsion from actual Sephardi, was actually a very sea-oriented, a very Mediterranean, a very trans-Mediterranean and transatlantic, if you wish. And the Jews were crossing the sea from all the sides all the time. So you could see how the rabbis, uh, I'll, I'll show you, for example, um, right. So this is this is main thesis that virtual Sephardi had four or three cornerstones, uh, which are four. The sea, the law, the liturgy, and the language. Why do I say the three cornerstones, which are four, and not four cornerstones? Because the language is not shared by all the Jews uh, uh, of the Ottoman Empire, even though there was a fusion between Romaniotti, between the Sephardim and the Romaniotti, and to a certain extent between uh, Sephardim and Mustarabim. So uh, basically, the language unification, the linguistic unification was something typical of Sephardim only. The people who uh, created the new language called Ladino. It's never existed before in Spain. The Jews in Spain didn't speak Ladino, but we'll get to it. So these are the four cornerstones. And now I'm speaking about the sea, virtual Sephardi as telesocracy. And uh, this is the old world. And my, my, my uh, presentation will concentrate mostly on it. But just to, 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 to be sure that we are not forgetting the Western Sephardim, also, I'll, sh I'll show you to what extent their community is also trans-Atlantic, uh, uh, trans I shall say. So we see the, the community of Amsterdam, right, which is on the sea. And we see, uh, the, 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 you know, on one side, Amsterdam, on, and on the other side, London. And London is not exactly on the sea, but we are, uh, we are river you can actually get from London uh, to the sea. And Hamburg, if you use Elba, you get to the sea. Uh, right, this is Hamburg, and uh, all those places in southern France where where Sephardic Jews settled, like Bordeaux or uh, Marseille, Marseille, and so on. Uh, they were also they were also either on the seaside or very close uh, to the sea. Bayonne, okay, you see how you use the river and you get straight uh, to the sea, or Gibraltar, which is in the middle of the sea, uh, doesn't. And then also the New World, right? The new Amsterdam, which is uh, today called New York for whatever reasons. Uh, and actually, if you are Sephardic, you just cross the sea and you go to your sister community, right? You cross the ocean, Newport, and so on. So this is the list of, of uh, uh, Sephardic communities in the New World. And you can see how all of them are actually around uh, close to the Atlantic Ocean. And now I'm getting to uh, what interests us tonight which is the Ottoman Jews. So now I'm getting to the second cornerstone of virtual Sephardi, and that's the law. Halakhical unification. Ribi Yaakov Berad, actually, was the first person to recognize the, problem, the, the, the problematics of uh, the Sephardic Jews being dispersed all over uh, North Africa, Middle East, uh, Asia Minor and the Balkans because while the Jews were in Spain, they could retain the mythos of Sephardic Jews or Jews of Spain being a single group. And they could also retain the mythos of all the Jews being a single group. 
Uh, and if the, all the Jews, and, 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 and let me put it this way, if a single Jew from Lucena was to travel to Girona, he would discover how crazy the Jews of Girona are. And if a Jew from Barcelona was to travel to Malaga, he would discover how crazy the Jews of Malaga are. But all the way, all of them stayed in their own communities. They imagined that all other Jews, at least all other Jews of Spain, are just like them. And then they could also imagine that Ashkenazim or Romaniotti or Mustarabim are just like them. Now, if all the Jews of uh, whatever, uh, Malaga, or the, if all the Jews of Granada were to move to Salonika, and all the Jews of Besalu to move to Istanbul, and all the Jews of, uh, give me another city, of uh, uh, Sevilla or Segovia were to move to Bursa, they could proceed with that mythos. But the problem is that few Jews from Segovia and few Jews from Barcelona and few Jews from Girona and few Jews from Malaga went to Salonika. And few Jews from all those communities went to Istanbul. And few Jews from all those communities went to um, Izmir. And then at the beginning of the 16th century, uh, as we can hear from the introduction to Maran's uh, Ribi, Yosef Karo's masterpiece, Bet Yosef, he says, and the Torah became hundred Torah. Even though the Torah explicitly says, you should have a single Torah uh, for a person, for, for, for a citizen, and for a pe person who acquires acquired citizenship, in other words, for a convert. Now he says the Torah became hundred Torah. And we had we have uh, historical evidence of communities being called after the cities from which they came. So in many places in the Ottoman Empire, you would have Cal Aragon and Cal Portugal, the synagogue called Aragon and the synagogue called Port Port Portugal. And you know the Jews. These people would not eat from the uh, Shechita and those, and those people would not follow the, the uh, wedding customs of those, and these people wouldn't uh, recognize their rabbi, and those people wouldn't attend that synagogue because it had different order of prayers. So this was, this was, and imagine now, if you have three or four Iberian communities, well, you know what? Two Iberian communities established, and you have one original Jewish community. So you have three Jewish communities. So Ribi Yaakov Berav decided that he wants to renew the Sanhedrin. The question is, who was against it? The secular? Not really. Nobody was secular. The woman? Not really. Nobody asked them. The children? Not really. Even today, we are not asking them. So who the heck was against? The rabbis. And why the rabbis were against the re-establishment of the Sanhedrin? Because the Sanhedrin would mean, re-establishment of the Sanhedrin would mean that only 70 people have top job and everybody else and everybody else is their clerk. And rabbis don't like being clerks. Every single rabbi prefers being his own uh, Moses. And this is why this is why they had metaphysical and physical, uh, theological and uh, financial uh, objections to Rabbi Yaakov Berav's idea. Uh, we st we are still feeling uh, this problem today because the Sanhedrin was never uh, was never established then, and even today, uh, when 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 most of the world 
Jewish population moved to Israel, still we don't have a Sanhedrin. Obviously, for the same, I mean, very probably for the same reason why we didn't have it reestablished in 15th century. So Rabbi Yaakov Bera wanted to renew the Semicha, and he wanted uh, to have 70 rabbis sit down and review all different traditions, the Andalusian and the Christian Spanish and the Mustarabi and the Romaniotti and, uh, and even Ashkenazi, and on base of that review to create one Torah for entire people of Israel. This didn't work. Now, Maran, there is a Sephardic uh, mythos that the name Maran, come on, we know what Maran means. Maran means the Lord and the Master, just like the Arabs say, Mavlana. But uh, not the Arabs, the Muslims. But in Sephardic national uh, imagination, uh, Maran means Me'atayim Rabbanim Nismach. He was recognized by 200 different rabbis. That's one of the beautiful stories. Uh, okay. And it's not, not based. It's just that Maran doesn't mean that. But yes, he was recognized by 200 rabbis, however incredible it is. But how did this happen? Uh, well, Maran recognized that uh, he, the attempt of his uh, teacher, Rabbi Yaakov Berat, didn't work, didn't succeed. So he wanted, he actually wanted, he was thinking in, in Avkat Rochel, the responsa that, he's, uh, that he has authored, he says that Rambam is Marade Atra of the entire Mushrik, of the entire, uh, of the entire East. Uh, he recognizes Rambam as Marade Atra of the land of Israel, of greater Syria, right? So his first idea was that he should add critical apparatus to Mishneh Torah. Why? Because just like many others before him, he believed that rabbinical elite did not uh, change uh, reality when they proclaimed that the reason why Rambam was not accepted, why Mishneh Torah was not accepted, is that he didn't discover his sources. That's what the rabbinical elite said. The rabbinical elite said, oh, such a pity, but if he had sources, we would consider it. So Maran now, young Maran, believes that if he, if he is to convert, uh, Mishneh, to, to convert Mishneh Torah into a scientific edition, <laughs> with all the footnotes which are saying this law is taken from that Mishnah and it's discussed also in this Tosefta and there is uh, another Beraita brought in by uh, Bavli which says so and so and so. So he writes his book Kesef Mishneh. Now I need you to concentrate because Kesef Mishneh shows the, the very name he chose for the book shows his um, Attitude towards Maimonides, towards Rambam. Why? Because Kesef Mishneh is uh, uh, mentioned in the Torah, in the Perasha, when Yaakov Avinu sends uh, his children for the second time to go to Egypt. He tells them, get them back, give them back the money that you owe them from the first time that was mistakenly returned to your bags, and bring also Kesef Mishneh, second round, for the second try. And this is exactly this is exactly what Maran is doing. So it's Kesef, it's not Zahav, it's Mishneh, it's secondary, 
Mishneh Torah is important. Kesef Mishneh is only the mean, the vehicle, the instrument. So he's putting him da- himself down towards Maimonides because of the huge ap- um, appreciation he had for him. We know this also from his personal mystic diary, which is called Magid Mesharim. Magid Mesharim, today we would consider it to be possession. At those times, they believed that uh, extra, uh, that, that some celestial being uh, outside of his own uh, mind and body is taking possession of his uh, voice. But in any case, Maran, throughout his life, whole, held different opinion than, on different occasions than many different rabbis. But only when he would hold different opinion than Rambam, he would feel so disturbed by it that there was need for this Magid, for this angel, for this celestial being, which was incorporation of the Shekhinah or the incorporation of, uh, of the Mishnah, to pacify him by telling him, don't worry, they heard your opinion in the heavenly yeshiva and Rambam agreed. So this also shows us what great estimation he had for Maimonides. He couldn't sleep when, held, when, when having different opinion than Maimonides and he needs to be miraculously, supernaturally uh, appeased. However, though, what was the reaction of the rabbinical elite to Kesef Mishneh? Uh, you shouldn't have bothered. Why? Because uh, Rambam was, it's not that Rambam was not accepted because he didn't have footnotes. Rambam was not accepted for the same reasons the Sanhedrin was not accepted, was not renewed. Because Maimonides says, as every single woman and child in Israel can use this book to reach the law. So there is no need for, uh, you know what, this is similar to, I have friends who, who are uh, computer developers, and they all hate Windows. Why do they hate Windows? Because Windows make them superficial. Because Windows make it possible for us who don't know anything about the computers to use computers. And they were the people who knew how to make C, double dot, slash, dir, slash, P, right? And they knew how to spoke the computer, how to speak the computerish and to speak with a, com- with a computer. And uh, uh, Windows made them kind of um, not needed magicians. And this is the way the rabbis felt about Mishneh Torah. And this is the way the rabbis felt about uh, Sanhedrin. So when the, the Maran of the blessed memory brought the footnotes for Mishneh Torah, the rabbinical lead said, oh, you shouldn't have bothered, but it wasn't accepted. And then Maran recognized that Jews will never accept a living Sanhedrin, and they will never accept a single book, not Jews, the rabbinical elite will never accept a living Sanhedrin or a single book. It needs to be complicated and it needs to give space for rabbinical leadership. So he said, okay, let's have a beddin of three dead people. <laughs> okay, maybe rabbis can accept authority of dead people because dead people cannot quarrel with them. And this is how he established the beddin of Rif, Rambam, and Rosh which actually represent three communities that he wants to unite. Rif being the Northern Africa, Rambam being the Orient, and Rosh being the Christian Spain. Right? Both Rif and Rambam obviously uh, represent also the Andalusian tradition, but Andalusian tradition and Moroccan tradition are one and the same. Rif didn't come from Germany to Spain. He came from Fez. 
He came from Fez to Lucena, where he established uh, Yeshiva. And his main pupil, Rabbi Yosef Awen Megas, Megas, not Migash, the way he's called by the Ashkenazim, um, uh, actually propagated the Alakha, which was brought from Fez and from Kairwan. So it's North African tradition, basically. But so Maran is now trying to make peace between uh, Sephardim who came from Christian Spain and the hosting North African and the hosting Middle Eastern communities. So he says, I'll take the book from Christian Spain, Arba'a Turim, written by the son of Harosh. Every single halakha that he names there, I will run it by three authorities, Rif, Rambam, and Rosh. Whoever, whenever at, at all three agree, or at least two of three agree, I will, I will be posek halakha uh, according to them. Now, this is a trick, because this was supposed to bring back the Jews of Christian Spain, to bring them back to Northern African and Middle Eastern tradition. Why? Because everybody knows, Maimonides himself says, uh, there are only 17 places where I held, where, where I hold a different opinion than Harav, than Rif. That means that Rif and Rambam, Rambam and Rif almost always agree. And this was Maran's trick. But look at the way he calls the book, Bet Yosef. Now he is the important one. Okay? This is the house of Joseph. Uh, he's not diminishing himself towards the, uh, the author of Arba'at Turim. But interestingly enough, Kesef Mishneh and Bet Yosef, they both appear in the same book, right? In the same parasha. Kesef Mishneh and Bet Yosef, they are, pesuk, they are mentioned in the same pesukim. To make a long story short, uh, I'm finishing this point. Uh, he made this commentary and, and the, the rabbis all over the world were kind of, wow, this is great. It's still complicated. It still needs rabbinical expertise, but at least now uh, we have uh, a limited place for training of the young rabbinical elite. So they turned to him and they asked him to summarize it in a single book, and he did. And this book is called Shulchan Aruch. Now, where do we have Shulchan Aruch in the Mikra? Because we know that by now, Sephardic rabbis, if they are writing their book 10, 10 years, 11 years, they are thinking of the title. And if they are writing their book 20 years, 21 years, they are thinking about the title. So where does the title come from? The title comes from a very messianic uh, uh, biblical uh, passage from the Mizmole David Adonai Ro'i, Lo Ehsar, Binodeshe Arbiseni, Almemen Hotena, Lenin of Shia Savi, Yanheni Bimagele, Sedek, Leman Shemo, Gamki, Lech Begetzel Mavet, Loira Ra, and so on. Ta'aroch Shulchan, Neged Sorerai. You have uh, fixed my table against my enemies. Now, Maran, after the Shulchan Aruch was accepted, he feels like a new King David, like the King of Halakha, like the King of the rabbinical elite. And this is Shulchan Aruch. This is the second cornerstone of Sefarad. The first is the sea, virtual Sefarad. The first is the sea. The second corner is the law. Now, the third corner, liturgical unification. The Jews of Spain didn't have a single uh, Sidur. And the Jews of Catalonia had their own thing, and the Jews of Aragon, their own thing, and the Jews of Granada, their own thing, uh, and so on. But with the birth of Kabbalah, and with the impact that the Kabbalah of Safed had upon all Jewish communities, it turned to be that in 16th century, 
everybody accepted the same Musah Tefillah, even the Ashkenazim. So today you have Sephardic or Edot Mizrach Musah Tefillah, then you have Sfard. What is Sfard? Oh, Sfard is Ashkenazim who pray like Sephardim. <laughs> and overwhelming majority of Ashkenazim are praying Sephardic liturgical uh, tradition. They might have some differences based on their previous tradition for Yom Kippur or Shoshanah, but daily prayer, Shabbat prayer, it's all Safed. It's, most of it is Safed. Not only the Hasidim, but also the Mitnagdim. Uh, so basically only a single group amongst the Ashkenazim stayed with the original Ashkenazi Nusach, which is the Parshim. Everybody else is praying Sephardic Nusach. And now I'm switching to the linguistic uh, unification. Uh, so Many people think the Jews in Spain spoke Ladino. Never. The same way the Jews in America or the Jews in United Kingdom or any place in the Commonwealth, Jews in Australia or in New Zealand, are not speaking Junglish or Jewish English, but rather each of them is speaking local English where he is. And if he is in, in uh, London, he speaks uh, you know Cockney. And if he is in New York, he speaks fabulously, actually. And if he's in Alabama, okay, so if a person in Alabama says to his wife, Dar, or in New York, darling, would you like to make the Kiddush uh, in the Sukkah or inside? This doesn't constitute Junglish. This is not a separate language. This is a New York English with few Hebrew and few Yiddish words. The same is true about the Jews in Spain. They all spoke either Castilian or Aragonese or Catalan or Valencian, or Portuguese. And they had 100 uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Arabic uh, verbs or words, nouns and verbs, uh, related mostly to synagogal life. Like, you know, like Ketubah, and Hatuna and Hatan, and Kala, and uh, Get, uh, and so on. But this didn't constitute a different separate Jewish language. Now, when all of them moved to, to the... Ottoman realm, uh, those who stayed near the sea, they proceeded speaking Spanish. Those who were remoted uh, three or more days from the sea, within 100 years, they've lost their Spanish. Those who were remoted from the sea seven days they or 10 days, they've lost it. Uh, no, the other way around. For example, if you go to Marrakesh in Morocco, you have a synagogue called Al-Azma, which means Gerush, expulsion. But nobody there speaks Spanish. Uh, but the community, the, the, that synagogue keeps still Spanish customs, Iberian Jewish customs. Now, if you go to Fez, there is an interesting synag- uh, situation. You see the synagogue called Awendanan, right? It's a famous Spanish family. Uh, then you see other synagogues called by different Sephardic families. And then there is a synagogue called Al-Fasiyim, the people of Fez. So you say, but we are in Fez. Why would any synagogue be called people of Fez if, if we are in Fez? Well, the Sephardim called the synagogue of the locals the people of Fez because they were not people of Fez, they were people of Sephardim. But in Marrakesh, Spanish was lost like within 100 years. In Fez, it was lost within two or 300 years. But in Tetuan, Tangier, Ceuta, Melilla, everything which is close to the sea, it is kept until this very day. The Ladino of Northern Africa is called Hakitiya. Now, obviously, this doesn't have to do anything with ethnic purity because the Jews who would move, the Berberian-speaking Jews or the Arabic-speaking Jews who would move from southern Morocco or central Morocco 
to northern Morocco, they would switch to Spanish within a single generation. So when we say that, you know, Hakitia speaking Jews of northern Africa, uh, right, uh, you know, they speak Spanish language, this doesn't mean that all of them are necessarily uh, genetically from Iberian Peninsula. Many of them are Berberian or Arabic speaking Jews who picked Spanish. The same is true about the same is true about uh, Sephardic expulsees who went to south to central Morocco or to southern Morocco. They've lost the language that they genetically uh, they are from Iberian Peninsula. So to make a long story short, throughout the 16th century, at the same time when halakhical unification and liturgical unification was reached, the linguistic unification was reached, not due to conscious process uh, like uh, the halakhical unification, but rather to a spontaneous process just like liturgical unification. The Jews of all uh, the Ottoman Empire have forsaken the dialects with which they came from Spain, and they all reached out for the Castilian. There are economic reasons, there are, there, there are cultural reasons for this, but however, uh, uh, Catalan uh, and Portuguese and Valencia, Valencian and so on, they disappear from 17th century on. In 16th century, they, are, they still have some presence, and all the Jews switch to Castilian. Now, this Castilian is mixed with Catalan and Portuguese, uh, where there were many people from these communities. It's also mixed with Hebrew and, uh, and Aramaic because it's a Jewish language. And it's obviously mixed with the Ottoman uh, uh, languages, such as Ottoman, Turkish, Arabic, and Persian. So now I want, uh, I suppose, basically, you actually knew all of this. Now I want to go to something that most of the people usually don't. So the overwhel I, I want to talk now about the overwhelming Sephardization of the Romaniati Jews, the limited Sephardization of Musta'arabim, the overwhelming Rom uh, Romaniotization and limited Musta'arabization of the Sephardim. Okay? So until recently, uh, we always spoke about Sephardic supremacy and how when Sephardim came to the Balkans, for example, to the realms of the uh, Eastern Roman Empire, to the realm of the Romaniotti Jews, how actually they were so whatever, so snobbish or so developed or so I don't know what, uh, so their culture was so overwhelming uh, 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 that most of the Romaniotti Jews became Sephardic. And with Mustarabim, it didn't really happen. And many of the Sephardic Jews became Mustarabim. And then, you know, you, the, 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 usually the, the research would say, and this is because these people have had an established culture. And they were also, and also most of the Sephardic Jews have had Arabic roots because only three or four or five or six generations before their communities, before Conquista, were Arabic speaking communities. Today, we understand that this is not true. Actually, the Sephardic Jews didn't exist in Spain. In Spain, there was not a single Jewish unit community. We had the Jews of Andalusia. We have the Jew, had the Jews of Christian Spain. They were different amongst themselves. Uh, but what made Sephardic Jews Sephardic is their contact with Romaniotti. So, and this is what I will prove tonight, what I hope to prove tonight. The same way the Sephardim influenced Romaniotti, they were also highly influenced by the Romaniati. 
And now this is the this is the main topic. So first of all, about how come and why uh, Romaniotti Jews were so different than other Jews. Well, they lived in the they lived in a, uh, the realm of the Eastern Orthodox Church. And they would say, okay, whatever, it's church, it's Christians. No, it's not. The the Oriental Church, first of all, uh, just like the Catholic Church. The Oriental Church or the Eastern Church or the Orthodox Church believes that eventually, before the second arrival of, of uh, JC, all the Jews will convert. But Eastern Church doesn't believe in forceful uh, conversion. Eastern Church believes that conversion needs to be from within the heart. Now, this is very important, so I will elaborate and it will take me two minutes. The Catholic Church reached the conclusion that baptism is not a willing act. Why? Because they are baptizing children. And later, that child, uh, if the child wants to become a witch, which is forbidden by Christian law, or if it wants to become a homosexual, which is forbidden by, by, by Catholic law, or if it wants to become, I don't know what, the, the child cannot claim, oh, I'm not really Catholic. Nobody ever asked me. They baptized me when I was a child. Uh, I'm not really Catholic. No, the child, would, the, 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 the later grown-up person would be subjected to capital punishment or any type of punishment, even though it was baptized as a child. So from there, the Catholic Church reached the conclusion that uh, baptism is not a willing, uh, that baptism is not a willing act. Why is this relevant for the Jews? Because in 1391, one third of the Jews in Spain were converted to Christianity by force. And the question is whether these uh, this conversion holds. And the Catholic decision was that it does. So even though they were, just like the child is never asked, uh, so the people who were forcefully converted, they are Catholics, and the church now needs to make sure they will stay Catholics. Now, the Eastern Church, coming from the same Christian root and tradition, reached the opposite decision. Uh, forceful conversion doesn't hold. So this is so true. Uh, you can read, uh, while I'm talking, you can read uh, the, 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 uh, what's in the back here, in the background. So. First of all, there was no uh, mass conversion. Second, if the kings would do mass conversion, after the king dies or is removed from power or whatever, the church would uh, not allow, ask the Jews to return to Judaism because the church didn't want half-hearted Christians. Uh, and then, even bigger than that, when per individual Jews would convert, the church would check why they are converting. And then if individual Jews, for whatever reasons, returned to their Judaism, the church would only excommunicate them, but it would never impose Christianity on them. So no inquisition, no mass conversions. If there are, if there are mass conversions, they are done by the secular power. The church doesn't recognize them. It allows the Jews to return. And in, even in cases of individual conversions, uh, the Jews are not only allowed, but expected to go back to their to their flock if they were disappointed with Christianity. All of this without being exec executed, maltreated, and so on. So this approach of the uh, church, this approach of the church created a different Judaism, right? Uh, the Judaism of the Catholic Protestant realm is, no, the Judaism of Catholic realm is one Judaism, and the Judaism of the Orthodox, of the realm of Orthodox Church is another. So no compulsion in religious matters, no forced individual or mass conversions, no inquisition, no compulsory staying in faith. Uh, uh, I will send, I will send uh, Avi uh, these books so you can read them if you want. 
uh, Jews and another minorities in Byzantium uh, and so on. So there is no need for us to dwell now on these passages, which you can read later, being the fact that I will be sending also the PPP, the PowerPoint presentation, so you can just read it. But the most important thing um, uh, for me is the fact that even though the Greece is the cradle of philosophy, the Greek Jews didn't deal with philosophy, right? The Greek Jews didn't deal with philosophy. This is extremely important. So uh, what do we know? Uh, what do we know about Greek Jewry? I will show you uh, in the middle, in a, in a, in a minute. Uh, okay. Uh, let me just see. Yeah. So there are three or four Greek Jews who are philosophers. Unlike the hundreds of authors on different philosophical uh, uh, works that we know from Andalusian tradition. So there is uh, uh, Ribi Moshe Kilti, uh, who was a pupil of the renowned Ravana David Pardolo, uh, Pardoleone, right? So he was Italian. Uh, the only other two philosoph philosophical authors mentioned by him in Greece are Shemaria Ikriti, Elia Ben Eliezer, the philosopher of Candia. Then also there is Yuda uh, Ibn Mosconi, right? Three or four people dealing with philosophy. Now, something big. Usually people talk about the Sephardic of three cultures, Spain of three cultures. That's BS. There was never such a thing as Spain of three cultures. There was always Spain of six cultures. Why? Because the war between the Aristotelians and the Platonians in every of the single of the three traditional communities was bigger than the war between those communities. In other words, the Platonians amongst the Jews would make a pact with the Platonians amongst the Catholics against the Maimonidians or Aristotelians amongst the Jews. So there was never such a thing as uh, you know Catholic Spain, Muslim Spain, and Jewish Spain. No. There is Jewish Aristotelian slash Maimonidian Spain uh, versus Jewish Platonian and Neo-Platonian Spain. There is Catholic Aristotelian and Catholic Neo-Platonian, but most of the Catholics were Neo-Platonian anyways. And then there is Muslim uh, Aristotelian and Neo-Platonian. So in Spain, philosophy was even the people who are anti-philosophical totally, right? They need to use philosophy to prove their point. So Yehuda Halevi, who is anti-philosophic, he believes in intuition and not in ratio and so on, but he is using philosophical uh, terminology and methodology to prove his point. Or for example, if you take Al-Ghazali, Al-Ghazali is not necessarily Spanish, but he is uh, an Arabic thinker who wrote a book called Tahafut uh, al-Falasifa, on stupidity of philosophers, right? And then, or on, 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 on how you would call it, futility of philosophers. And then a Spanish Jew, Avenro, or Avenroj, Ibn Rushd, uh, Averro, uh, responds to him writing a book called Tahafut at Tahafuta, on futility of futility, <laughs> right? Uh, so you see that people who, who are fighting philosophy and people who are uh, uh, fighting back in the name of philosophy, they are all using philosophical methodology. Now, the, Sp the Spanish Jews are coming to the Ottoman Empire. Uh, I will just bring you one example. Ribi Moshe Mosnino, he was born in Salonika in 1518, right? Um, his family is coming from, uh, from uh, España, from 
Jaca from Huesca, and uh, some of his um, uh, forefathers were burned by the Inquisition. And this guy is coming to the Ottoman Empire. And look at look at his opus. Look at what he's dealing with. He's writing uh, Epistle El Tratado de Estrolabio, right? So this is scientific. And then he's writing El Tratado de los Sueños before Freud. Uh, Don Josef Nasi, right? Uh, the knee of the of Dona Gracia is asking him to write him a scientific introduction from Jewish point of view to the phenom- phenomenology of the dream. And he is also, this is another thing, El Canon de Reloj de Plata, the canon of the silver, silver uh, sundial. Um, and uh, also philosophical or metaphysical theological matters like Epistle and the Resurrection of the Dead, uh, composed as the request of an uh, ex-converso who settled uh, in Salonica, right? Uh, or um, uh, Opiniones Sacadas de los Filosofos sobre la Alma, right? Anthropology or, or Introduction to the Soul, Human Soul, uh, based on philosophy, and so on. Just look at this. Um, uh, he wrote an exposition of Aristote- Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, the book is called Pene Moshe, considered the most important philosophical text produced by Ottoman Jews. But let's be honest, competition wasn't big. <laughs> Why? Because the Sephardic Jews in the Ottoman Empire are becoming Romaniotti. They couldn't care less about philosophy. And I'll explain why. But before that, his interest in the science is reflected in his commentaries on Aristotle's physics and on Sfera Mundi by Johannes de Sacrobosco, uh, the later Bet Elohim includes a seven-page description of America, and so on. Uh, finally, Almosnino translated and commented on Georg uh, Peuerbach's Theorica Nove Planetarum and translated from Latin Aristotle's problems. Okay, so this is Sephardic Kaham from the early 16th century. In 17th century, there is nobody like him. In 18th century, there is nobody like him. In 19th century, there is nobody like him. So why? And this is my claim. Who needs philosophy if its main purpose is to convince oneself when nobody around seems to care about your beliefs? When the Sephardic Jews came to the uh, Romaniotti realm, uh, Romaniotti Jews were known for three things. Iun tefillah, in other words, using tefillah as mystical vehicle for mystical, personal, individual, uh, and community communitarian experience. They were known for Midrash, they were known for Mikra, they were known for Piyut, but they were not known for Talmud study, and they were not known for philosophical study. And this is exactly what Sephardim will become like. And this is crazy. This is unbelievable that until recently nobody saw this. So if we are talking about bye-bye philosophy, we can say that it's 1-0 for the Romaniotti. The Romaniotti are leading now because the Sephardim are following them and forsaking the philosophy. But then many of the Romaniotti converted to Judeo-Spanish throughout the 16th century. Only few enclaves stayed Greek-speaking. Most of the Romaniotti converted to Ladino, so it's again 1-1. But then uh, uh, now Sephardim are leading because they made the Romaniotti halachocentric. Romaniotti were never halachocentric. They were very punctual about halacha, but they were not into codification. Now, Sephardim 
whatever they do, it's, it's always codification, codification, codification. So they come and, and Romaniotti now accept the Shulchan Aruch and this uh, Sephardic halachocentrism. So it's still one for Sephardim. But there have been a question. The Sephardim are coming from Christian Spain. So look at this. This is a Romaniotti rabbi and he has Kalimavki. That's a Romaniotti rabbinical hat, right? And this is Sephardic Haham from uh, Zemun, originally from Sarajevo, the, the, the person who envisioned uh, the, the, the Zionism and the state, Ribi Uda Al-Kalai, and you see him wearing the Romaniotti attire. He has, I, I will elaborate, oh, the, here is another rabbi from Nish. Again, you see the Romaniotti attire, and this attire is obviously shared with the Orthodox Church. <laughs> Because the, the Romaniotti Chachamim were wearing Kalimavki, the hat, um, and the, the robe, the, 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 it's called Mantia, uh, or Jube. And you see how Sephardic Chachamim took it over, right? Uh, now, being different, Islamic touch. <laughs> what does that mean? You can see now the very similar, the, the very similar hat, like Kalimavki, but Sephardic rabbis in those parts of the Ottoman Empire where the Muslims were majority, they would add a saruk, right, around the Kalimavki. So the Kalimavki is Orthodox priest and Romaniotti rabbi uh, headgear, and the Sephardic rabbis would just add to it, okay, uh, just like you can see here, right, uh, and you can see here. But also later, they would switch just to plain Turkish fez, plain Ottoman fez, okay. Now, being different, Romaniotti Chachamim, after the Sephardi Chachamim, acquired Romaniotti attire, and in those places where uh, uh, Orthodox Christians were majority, there was no apparent visual difference between Sephardi Chacham and Romaniotti Chacham. Romaniotti Chacham went even more Greek. So here you can see a Romaniotti Chacham, right, wearing, you see, the thing that looks like the Mapa of Sefer Torah, right, with the Aseret with Shenelu Chotaberit and Aseret Adiberot and Keter Torah and so on, so this is what Romaniotti Chachamim started wearing to be different than Sephardi Chachamim when acting, right? Not on daily basis, but when serving in the in the in the synagogue, they would wear this. This is obviously from the Christian Orthodox Church. It's called it's called Epitrahilio or Trachelos. Right, and uh, basically, trachelos is the neck, and epitrahilio is the whatever the neck cloth, and this is how they look in the Christian Orthodox Church. Okay, now another thing: you see this huge Magen David, which would be uh, which which uh, the Romaniotti Chachamim used to wear, <laughs> right? So it has either only Magen David or Magen David with Shanelu uh, Chotaberit and Keter Torah. And here you have the present-day uh, chief rabbi of Greece uh, uh, with, uh, uh, with a similar thing. And here you have uh, the rabbi of Volos, Moshe Pesach, uh, with such a Magen David. And here you have an Orthodox priest. Now I will like, elaborate here. The same way the, the Romaniotti Chachamim used this thing to be different than Sephardi Chachamim, the, the Christian Orthodox priest used this to be different than Catholic priests. So a Catholic priest wear, wears a cross. Now, the Orthodox priests didn't like the idea of being mixed 
uh, with Catholic priests and being taken mistakenly for a Christian uh, for a Catholic priest. So they would wear uh, instead of uh, the cross, they would wear the Holy Mary. It's called Panagia, which means the pan holy, the pan saint. Uh, or they would wear both the cross and the Panagia. But that's the difference between Orthodox and Catholic. So the uh, you can see how basically the, the Panagia, which Orthodox priests invented to be different than Catholic, made its way to Romagnotti Chachamim, becoming a Magen David, which looks just like uh, which looks just like Panagia. But then the Sephardic rabbis, at least in Turkey, didn't let them go too far. So they also invented their own Panagia, <laughs> right? Which has uh, two tables of the law. Um, and okay, so this is Chacham David Azeo, the, the, the chief rabbi of Turkey. And now we are moving to the last point, Turkification of Israel. <laughs> Here you have Chacham uh, Ovadia. Uh, when Chacham Ovadia became the chief rabbi, the, the, the Jew, Jewish community of Turkey brought him a present. <laughs> and the present was the, the two ta uh, tab tablets of the law. And here you see his son. And his son recently gave an interview and saying it's so beautiful. He said, I was invited to come to an uh, interreligious interfaith uh, dialogue meeting. And I was thinking all these people will be coming with their crosses. I also have something to, I also have to put something against those crosses. And then I remember that when my father was proclaimed chief rabbi of Israel, he got one beautiful present from the uh, Jewish community of Turkey. So I went, I found it, and uh, I had it with me, right? So uh, to make a long story short, uh, I want to summarize what I uh, tried to present tonight. Unlike assumption of the research until recently, uh, it's not that Romaniotti Jews were swallowed by the Sephardic Jews. No, there was a fusion of the two communities. And Sephardim have given up and given, uh, Sephardim have given up and, 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 and shared much, and Romaniotti have given up much and shared much. So basically, the Sephardic Jews of the Balkans, of the Asia Minor, and of the Middle East are not to be mixed with Andalusian Jews because they were, you can make it for, you can say for better, you can say for worse, but they were, they, they were actually made Sephardim. When, what we mean when we say Sephardim today, it's a fusion between uh, uh, mostly uh, Iberian heritage, Romagnotti heritage and Mustarabi heritage, right? So, um, again, there is nothing racial about this because if Ashkenazim were to live in the Iberian Peninsula, they would probably become Sephardim. If the Sephardim were to live in Ukraine or in Poland, they would probably become Ashkenazim. Uh, many people moved from uh, different communities and became part of present-day Sephardic nation. The same way many people originally from Spain moved uh, to, to southern Morocco or to Ashkenaz and became part of those Jewish communities. Now, what did the Sephardim, and with this I want to end, unfortunately I don't have here uh, unfortunately, I don't have here enough pictures to accompany this because I'm on, on my laptop and not on my PC. But 
people, many a time, people say, you know, between the Mustarabim and between the Ashkenazim, the Sephardic Jews are such a tiny, the Sephardic Jews in strict sense, the Ladino-speaking Sephardic Jews. Nobody is saying that Mustarabim are not Sephardic. Obviously, they are. Certainly, they are Sephardic. They are Sephardic in terms of Alaha, in terms of uh, culture, in terms of mentality. But linguistically speaking, we can also speak about strict sense Sephardic Jews. So Sephardic Jews as a hierarchical community can be divided into two subgroups, the Ladino-speaking and the Arabic-speaking Sephardim. Now, if you are talking about Ladino-speaking, uh, if you are talking about Ladino-speaking Sephardim, many a time people say, eh, you know, what did they give to, you know, to the Jewish nation or to Israel? They're such a tiny minority. Well, they gave only three, four things. First of all, they gave base for the Zionist claim to the land of Israel because they lived here. And, uh, and uh, when the Ottoman Empire was um, divided between it, its peoples, it was only logical that the Jews, and I really, really, really don't understand why Israeli Hasbara is such a dilettant and stupid uh, project that they, it, it's, it's, it's very easy to claim why we are here. How many percentages, uh, how many Jews were uh, in the Ottoman Empire? Okay, how much land should they get? Forget about Ashkenazim, forget about anybody else. The Ottoman Empire is uh, now dissolving. Everybody is getting something. You can give the Jews Salonika, like Macedonia, if you want to follow uh, uh, demographical uh, principles, or you can give them the land of Israel if you want to follow uh, demographical and historical. But you need to give them something. They were, they were part and parcel of the empire. So the Jews should, and the, the, the land of Israel, present land of Israel is smaller than the Jewish percentage in the population. We should get it anyway. And this is what Israeli Asbara should start with, but unfortunately it's Ashkenazocentric and incapable of concentrating on anything else but Poland. So um, another thing. So we gave the base for the claim that this land is ours. Second thing, we gave the language. Nobody here speaks, sorry, but nobody here speaks Ashkenazi and nobody here speaks Mustarabi. Nobody speaks with ho, to, so, right? Uh, Israeli Hebrew is spoken the way the Sephardic Jews prayed. When I moved from Sarajevo, I just need, uh, I just need to correct Israelis with Shevana because they mispronounce Shevana, which we don't. But in the rest of it, they speak Hebrew just the way we prayed in Sarajevo. They also don't say he, like holiday in, right? <laughs> That's the Israeli way. Just the way we said in Sarajevo. You don't hear the he. So everybody here speaks the, 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 the Sephardic Hebrew. Nobody speaks the Mustarabi Hebrew. And nobody speaks the, the Ashkenazi Hebrew. Nobody says Shabbos and Sukkot. And nobody says Kados, 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 Adonai, Sevaot. Right? Okay. So that's only two things, the country and the language. Then we also gave the flag. How we gave the flag? Because Israeli flag, uh, because Israeli flag is Sephardi Talet. Ashkenazi Talet was woolen, black and white. Most of the Musta'arabi Taletot were woolen, black and white. The Sephardi, because the Sephardim lived around the uh, Mediterranean basin, uh, they actually they were actually a link in the silk way 
and they started, they, many of the Sephardim dealt with textile and with silk. And once they could reach silk, uh, uh, you know, cheap wholesale, like the Syrians say today in Brooklyn, uh, one ca- they could buy uh, uh, silk wholesale, they used it, used it also for the mitzvot. So the Sephardim were the first to put the chelet onto their silk white talet, which is flaggish. The Ashkenazi talet, right? The Ashkenazi talet is square. And when you put it, you put the, the, the other parts of it on your shoulders, and then the, the talet reaches until the end of your legs behind. The Sephardic talet is not square. Sephardic talet looks like a flag, right? And you put it only in front. So we gave the flag. And then the Israeli, the national emblem of Israel. Uh, let me just bring something. Okay, so the national the national emblem of Israel is this. Everybody knows it, right? The two olive branches with the uh, menorah, and it's from it's not uh, menorat Mikdash, it's menorat Zechariah. In the prophet Zechariah, it specifically uh, he specifically mentions two olive branches from which the oil is coming to the menorah. Now, this thing was first time represented in Jewish history in Lisbon Bible by a Sephardic miniaturist. So you can go now uh, to the internet and look for Lisbon Bible or Lisbon, yeah, Lisbon Tanakh and look for this beautiful menorah. So <clears throat> the first time Zechariah's menorah was painted or pictured or designed or whatever you want to call it is uh, in this Sephardic thing. So yes, all other communities gave other things. We only gave the land the language, the flag, and the emblem. So this is the end of my this is the end of my presentation. And now you are more than invited to uh, throw your tomatoes or throw your shoes. You know, like at the time when Bush went to Iraq, <laughs> or to share your thoughts and comments and uh, ultimate uh, how to call it uh, objections. Wow! Thank you so much, uh, Professor. That was very insightful and very well presented. Um, so anyone who wants to ask, criticize, uh, and raise your hand or unmute or write in the chat. We do have two questions in the chat. Uh, so Simon asks, did the Jews in Spain write Spanish and Hebrew script? Of course. Yes, they wrote Spanish and Hebrew. Not only Spanish. They wrote Castilian and Portuguese and uh, Catalan in Hebrew script and Arabic. They They just didn't know Latin script. Latin script was... Latin script for them was uh, Christian. It was foreign to them. Uh, Claudia asks, I know that Shiura does not cover Latin America Jews, but the shallow knowledge I have make me understand that basically Latin America native population and colonized population were done also by Jews who run away from Inquisition. My question, do you know any biography who support that idea? Who support which idea? I couldn't hear you well, sorry. Who support the idea that what? I believe Claudia is over here. Maybe she wants to explain her question better. Oh, I can open the chat. I also now know how to read. Okay, I know that you were <laughs> But the shallow knowledge I have make me understand that basically Latin American native population and colonized population were done also by Jews who ran away from Inquisition. Uh, well, if Jews... 
I know that today there are some people in in, in American Judaism who are claim, claiming, you know, that uh, uh, Sephardic Jews are uh, treated like Latinos or whatever they are, and so on. But uh, no, Sephardic Jews had their part also in slave uh, trade. This was legal. This was what many people were doing, and Sephardic Jews were also uh, part of it. They were never. I mean. If they played outside Christian, that's the way I understand your question. If they played on outside uh, Christians, they might be part of the colonizing power. So they might be clandestine Jews uh, posing as Christians, but uh, this wouldn't last for very long, one generation or two, and then either they return to Jewish community or they or they assimilate. So this is there is nothing Jewish about this phenomena. Uh, there is a lot human. There is a lot human about this phenomenon, but there is nothing specifically. There is nothing specifically. Uh, there is nothing specifically Jewish, and I don't buy into the idea that uh, you know the Jews, the Sephardic Jews, are not white and they were treated as uh, non-white and so on. That's simply. Uh, that's simply. That's simply uh, making us trendy, but you know. Uh, science is science and trends are trends and we don't need to be trendy we should be trendsetters hello there uh, it would be very very important for me to get some biography because down here I study about this and I don't have any anything that supports this idea okay so I can bring you some, some biographies of the Jews in Caribbeans or something like that uh, is that is that good enough? Uh, and yes. you can reach me via Facebook, right? I'm under my name on Facebook, Eliezer Papa, the way it's spelled here. Uh, or you can reach me via Gmail, Papa Eliezer, it's uh, vice versa. The second name and then the name, strudelgmail.com. And I'll, I'll share with you uh, what I have, okay? Thank you very much. Pues de nada. We have a question from Nicole. Can you elaborate a little more? What would have been the logical conclusion when dividing the Ottoman Empire? What would be the logical conclusion? Okay. Uh, if the Ottoman Empire is under a process of deconstruction where every single millet, in other words, every single ethno-confessional community is receiving one proportion, one part of the ex-common empire, then the Jews are not more entitled or less entitled than anybody else in the empire. And if the Serbs are getting Serbia, and if the Bulgarians are getting Bulgaria, and if the Greeks are getting Greece, and if the if the and so on, then the Jews uh, need to get something because they are, they live there. You need to give them some part of the land, and then you have to decide whether you follow exclusively demographic principle and you say Salonika 80% of the people of the people in Salonika were Jewish so Salonika the port and the and the Macedonia around it uh, uh, should become Jewish land or you could follow demographic and historical principle together and say uh, there is Jewish presence in the holy land no, uh, it's not overwhelming like in Salonika but it's obviously present and it's their historical land but we need to get part we are ottomans 
We want our part of the Ottoman Empire, full stop. And we are entitled to it, just like anybody else. Nobody is more entitled than us. Nobody is less entitled than us. I hope I was more clear now. Can you can you elaborate more on? Uh, you mentioned earlier that the uh, the attempt by uh, Beirav to reestablish the the Sanhedrin, so it was sort of a response to seeing the crumbling of the uh, of this uh, the, the expulsion. So he them the, trying to maintain that mythos of unity. Um, where 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 can we read more about that? Where do you see that? Oh well, uh, first of all, there are there are. Uh... There is a plenty of scientific uh, articles on that. I mean, not plenty, but there is there are scientific articles on that. Uh, some of them are in Hebrew. Some of them are in English. In Hebrew, Professor Meir Benayahu wrote about uh, Hidush Semicha. Meir Benayahu, a famous professor uh, and researcher. Uh, and uh, there are other people, but Benayahu is more than enough. He has monographic study about phenomena. So Benayahu is more than enough. And, and to push back a little bit, or not really to push back, but maybe to give more context of the um, sort of the 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 issue that the Chachamim of, of Jerusalem had with the reestablishment of the Semicha, you mentioned, you sort of presented it as sort of them trying to maintain their political power, which might be true, but it's also, you're seeing this guy who's basing off a Da'at Yachid of the Rambam, this theory that has no basis anywhere in the Talmud or anywhere in the Mishnah, or anywhere in rabbinic literature except for the Rambam. So, you know, it does give some more context to, to the issue other than just maintaining power. Uh, uh, okay, now I will elaborate and you will have to give me three minutes. A friend of mine who is a Maimonidian, uh, and you know, like sworn Maimonidian, uh, he believes that um, Bet HaMikdash, not only the Bet HaMikdash will never fall from heaven, but if, God forbid, the Bet HaMikdash was to, was to fall from heaven, we would need to remove it and to build another one. Because we are not Yotzeya Dehova with the Bet Mikdash which comes from heaven. Why? Because there are mitzvot. How you are supposed to build Bet Mikdash. To what the thing is uh, similar. Let's say you are walking, to, you woke up at six in the morning and you are walking the street and all of a sudden heavenly made tefillin falls onto your head. Have you completed the mitzvah of tefillin? Obviously not. You can cherish it, you can care about it, you can love it, you can put it into a special place. But you cannot use it to complete the mitzvah because we need man-made tefillin, right? So, um, so this friend of mine. Now look at this, and you will love it because it's so sephardic. So this friend of mine is quarreling with another uh, Haredi Jew, and he tells him how the Jews are supposed to build a temple, and the guy says, "No, no, God will build the temple." And he says, but if God build, uh, builds the temple, we need to deconstruct it in order that we can construct the temple on the place of the that was usurpated by the divine temple. And he says, this is a blasphemy. And then the guy thinks, 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 and he comes with the pasuk. Right? It's, uh, okay, so the, the temple of, of the Lord was prepared by your hands. And then a friend of mine looks at it in a very Sephardic way, and he says, oh, sorry, you are wrong. There is a dot in the Qaf, so it's not Mikdash, it's Mikdash. That's the single place in the, in the 
Torah where Mikadash is written with Shavana because it has Tashdid, it has the Dagesh Dagesh Chazak in the middle of Kuf. So the guy says, What the heck is Mikadash? And Shalomo says, I don't have a clue. That's something that God will build. But I know what's Mikdash without dotting Kof. <laughs> and that's something that we are supposed to build. So back to, your, back to the thing. Um, only my money, this is logical. I don't have anything else to say. Because you cannot be given mitzvah that you cannot renew uh, due to objective reasons. And then it needs to be lo bashamayim he. So the same, the same those people who know how to tell you he, when you want to, to say something charismatic or something prophetic and they tell you he, okay. So if he serves for that, it also serves for normal alaha. Basically, you can, you, if everybody is tameh, nobody is tameh. Then when they renew the temple, and they can go just like just the way they are. They can go up and they can renew the temple. And whoever uh, whoever doesn't believe in this doesn't believe in Loba Shamaim. He the Torah is not in heaven. And the Torah does and the Torah doesn't need uh, divine intervention in order to be capable of being completed. So yes, it doesn't listen. Uh, right? So uh, it doesn't matter whether it's Rambam is single opinion or it's overwhelming majority. He's right, logically. He's right, logically. You, there is there, the, the, uh, nobody ever, uh, nobody ever said that uh, certain alachot can be done only after divine intervention. This was not, again, this intervention was not academic. This was uh, rabbinic. Thank you. Okay. Anyone else? Last question. And okay. and and look at look at the pasuk. It's beautiful when it says mikedash with shavas. So it's not mikdash. It's mikedash. Mm-hmm. We have uh, Miguel says I do. Do you have a question, Miguel? You have to unmute. Okay, so may, Miguel, maybe you can uh, write to the professor um, on Facebook or an email um, for further discussion. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Thank you so much, Professor, uh, for being with us. It was an honor, very insightful. Hopefully, we'll have you again. And Laila Tov, everyone. Laila Tov, the honor is mine. <laughs>